S in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. Saturday Night Live, Season 2, Episode 3, starring Eric Idle, originally aired on October 2nd, 1976. Welcome, everyone. It is Episode 3 of Season 2 with Eric Idle. My name is Keith. Joining me, as always, is uh, my good buddy, Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello. How are you this evening? Pretty good. Excited. We're live tonight, right? We're live right now. Oh. (laughs) Um, And joining us tonight, back again. Um, I think joining our, our, our three-timers club, maybe our four-timers club, it's our good pal, Mark. Hello, Mark. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me back for a, a third time so far, but hopefully that, I'll break four soon. That's right, yeah. So you've had some dandies. Uh, you had Louise Lasser and uh, Ron Nesson. So uh, is season two going to turn over a new leaf for you, my friend? Uh, we're off to a better start so far, I can tell you that much. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Luck of the draw, I guess. We did get a, a comment, uh, two comments, actually. This was on a, on a couple of our videos. One of them told me where I could find lonely single women near me. I don't see how it's germane to the podcast, but uh, but thanks for the engagement. The second one, though, had said, well, why aren't you just putting up the full episodes? There's a lot of legalities there. You're limited when you're doing a review, the amount of content you can actually post. We can't simply put up the full episode and then say, good bad. And as well, it gives us a chance to chat about stuff and hopefully people will comment as well on their thoughts. Matt and I realize that some of our opinions are not universal. We've said some pretty harsh things about uh, different sketches and uh, even some of the different players. So if you disagree or agree, just let us know in the comments. Additionally, if you are a local single woman in my area, hit up the page. I I don't know if these ones were pro bono though. Like it it literally said single women in your area. And uh, a couple of those words were spelled wrong. And then the fine folks at YouTube actually just took the comments down. Um, before. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the, the local single women were just so excited by your fantastic content. They didn't have time for proper spelling. That's true. Yeah. I think they've been excited by, based on, from what I've heard, they've been excited by a lot of content on YouTube. <laughs> these, these comments have been going around. And now in reality, it is spam. And speaking of spam, let's talk Monty Python's Eric Idle. Gentlemen, you're both familiar with Monty Python? Yep. Oh, very much so. Eric Idle, born 1943, South Shields County, Durham, England. Pretty much raised by a single mother. His, his father, they say, survived World War II and then was sadly killed very shortly thereafter in an automobile incident. Eric Idle went to Cambridge like his fellow Pythons, John Cleese and Graham Chapman, but he got there after they had left. And then he worked on a show called Do Not Adjust Your Set with uh, Terry Jones, Terry Gilliam and Michael Palin. And then came Python. He wasn't part of a writing pair, so he was often the lone wolf in the group and did a lot of music with a gentleman we'll see briefly tonight, Neil Innes. He was definitely the most musical of the batch. To me, I always got the impression that Eric Idle was the most comfortable working in the United States and in around Hollywood, certainly has a business sense that a lot of the other ones don't have. Where do you guys rate Eric Idle as far as his, his like Python or post-Python, or or like where would he be on your sort of pecking order of fame or anything like that? I need to clarify first and foremost, I am no Monty Python super fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know it and I like it. And re- re- really like the television show, I, I, I really haven't even seen a lot of. I always just watched the movies. 
Eric Idle was always my favorite when I was a kid right away because he just looked so goofy. Such an odd looking man. That British long face. He almost, he looks like Roger Waters' cousin. (laughs) Just had that goofier, not so British, stodgy vibe. It was uh, a little more playful. Mm -hmm. And uh, I appreciated that. I was a big fan of Monty Python when I was younger. John Cleese was always kind of my 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 main guy, but I grew up. I think I watched Faulty Towers before I got into Monty Python as a teenager. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after John Cleese, Eric Idle would be probably my my second favorite of the crew. I believe he did um, a character in the Transformers movie. Out of all of them, I would have been ex- exposed to him first. He might be the most famous outside of the group, though, for for stuff like that. Maybe in, in England itself, I know Michael Palin has been busy the whole way through, and uh, he's the only one that has been knighted. But uh, I think uh, Idol is one that uh, you certainly you certainly know stuff he's done away from Python. And it might surprise our listeners, the thousands, and maybe you yourself, Keith, to know that I actually uh, really appreciated Eric Idol's musicality throughout his uh, run. You know how I generally feel about music in my variety programming. Yeah, for sure. So at this point, uh, Python was on a break. Holy Grail had already been done, and Life of Brian was still a few years off. So I was really excited to hear uh, we have uh, Eric Idle tonight. I was excited for it because I never imagined that he would be here hosting. And like, It's not a name I ever would have pulled out if you said, hey, what do you think my host season two around here in 1976? I, I would have never guessed in a thousand years. Eric Idle. Yeah, I know after the uh, the last two episodes that I watched, I was very much so looking forward to someone who I knew, for one, already and had some familiarity with, but also someone who's actually like a, a comedian. <laughs> yeah, crucial, but uh, certainly enhances my enjoyment. Crucial is too strong a word. I feel you, though. And tonight's musical guest is Joe Cocker and uh, the band uh, the band Stuff. So our cold open starts at the weekend update desk, and Chevy Chase is announced. But it's not Chevy Chase; it's uh, Richard Belzer, who at the time was working as the Saturday Night Live warm up comic. And this is Belzer's first time that at least I've noticed him on the SNL screen since episode one, when he was an extra in the uh, jury during the uh, courtroom sketch. Belzer and Chevy had worked together on with uh, Ken Shapiro, father of the three dancing Shapiro sisters from last year's Peter Boyle episode. They had appeared in Shapiro's film Groove Tube, and uh, they'd also worked together on the National Lampoon Radio Hour and a few other things. So the phone rings, and it's Chevy Chase saying he hasn't gotten any cards from anyone. No one calls him. And he turns on the show and sees this guy saying he's Chevy Chase. Belzer argues with Chevy and says he answered an ad looking for a good-looking buffoon who was a flash in the pan until Chevy gets Belzer to take a framed picture from the bottom drawer. Belzer then says his plan or basically says that Chevy Chase has now signed a new deal with NBC after plastic surgery. He drops the phone and the picture over the edge of the desk and we get Chevy doing the live from New York. I thought Chevy was really funny. I think I thought the stills thought it was really funny. He made me laugh. Uh, Richard Belzer, who I like later, uh, did nothing for me. And I, in fact, found him very irritating. Yeah, there was an arrogance in his performance that didn't read great for me. Um, this one felt like it dragged a little. The idea was good. I had a couple of laughs. Uh, Chevy was pretty good. And the, the good looking buffoon line made me laugh. But it, it just felt like this could have been a good 30 seconds shorter. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I really like Belzer, but I didn't think this worked. And I didn't think the audience thought this worked. The audience did not seem to like this at all. It was hostile. It was weirdly uh, aggressive. It, not only his performance, but so jarring, too, to have the show open with Weekend Update as it is. And then this abrasive ah, fraud <laughs> sitting at a desk. And yeah, it was it's uh, it was weird. Yeah, I uh, for a second, I thought maybe I, I started the video at the wrong point or something. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. where... It started a weekend update, so I was already a little jarred. And, and yeah, he was quite abrasive. And of course, uh, Richard Belzer is in the Guinness Book of World Records for playing the role of John Munch on more television shows than any other character has ever appeared. So the opening, there's really nothing to report in the opening beyond Don Pardo again saying, featuring the voice of Chevy Chase. I, it's not knowing that Stuff was a band that was going to play made it pretty funny when he just said stuff. I was expecting him to follow it with and things, actually, because I I didn't realize it was a band either. (laughs) We go to the monologue. Eric Idle's sitting at home base with his guitar, and he's sitting in the spotlight, and he starts to play a song that he just recorded over in England, and it's actually Here Comes the Sun, and it sounds very, very pretty and very nice, and then he starts basically yelling out the chorus. Jane comes out and interrupts him, and she asks him to take a walk and says she knows Eric is new to the U.S. And they'll put a song like that that's so important and meaningful at the end of the show. So she walks Idle over to a set where he puts on a lab coat and joins Gilda and Dan for the next sketch. I was impressed, actually, his, his playing seemed fairly nuanced. Um, and when he started belting it out, you know, you're expecting the, the soft, pleasant singing. He just starts yelling. I had a good chuckle at that. And then uh, they didn't drag it out, which I which I liked. Like a joke like that, you can really easily beat to death in the moment. Um, and yeah, just having Jane come in and, and cut it short. Uh, I, I liked it. Me too. He's just funny to look at. Like looking at Eric Idle makes me laugh. So he doesn't have to try too hard. He does, and he's very successful. But, I mean, to, to look at him for me is laughter. So this was a, a winner for me. He has a presence. He's very confident and, and smooth in everything he does. It's uh, bar-raising, dare I say. Yeah, and this is the first of several, like, Python-esque transitions we're going to see tonight to varying degrees of success, I think. So our first sketch is genetic counseling, and Eric Idle plays genetic counselor Dr. T. Runyon. And he's sitting across from uh, Gilda and Dan Aykroyd. And he's asking them what they want their baby to look like. And he goes through the standard questions, height, complexion. And then he op- drops the odd fur or quilted, tongue or dipstick, Pekingese face or shrimp head. All I could think of is all these years later and all this talk these days of genetic counseling and uh, what do they call them, designer babies. Still a big going concern. I was shocked at how much of this was was a thing people talked about at least at this level back then i thought this was well performed i really i kind of enjoyed this one me too good performances all around i mean it was a, a nice vehicle for eric idol to do his uh silly shtick for lack of a better way to put it a great success in that regard yeah the the presence you you mentioned from the the opening monologue part really carried through in this and you know to see dan and gilda playing so straight i guess i i, I haven't seen a lot of them do the straight man through the episodes I've watched, it really helped uh, Eric Idle shine. So I I enjoyed this as well. So then we go to K-Log Radio or K-L-O-G Radio. And it's a radio station, a very small booth, basically. And it starts with Here Comes the Sun playing over the radio. It's uh, cut off by disc jockey named Kip Casey, who is played by Dan Aykroyd. And what he's doing is he's alternating between AM and FM. 
when he plays a song, he, sw- he hits a switch and jumps over to the other band and is either the voice of AM's Kip Casey, who is kind of a loud, brash AM morning suppertime drive guy, or Kenneth Wardell, a very laid back, mellow, and possibly high FM jock. There's a lot of really fun stuff in this where on AM he advertises bread and then on FM he criticizes bread. This was really good. I think the joke would be somewhat lost on today's audience where AM is tough to find at the best of times. My big thing is I wish there was a difference in a bigger difference in the type of music that was being played. The Antler Dance actually gets played at one point from from last year, last week's episode. I thought this was really good, and I also really liked the name um, for the headphone company that was a sponsor, Stairway to Headphones. Yeah, what a fantastic showcase for his abilities. You know, like he was able to go so big and over the top as the AM guy and then bring it right down, you know, man, for the, the FM and just to, to watch him snapping back and forth so quickly. It was, it was a fun watch. Up and coming star. I feel a lot more variety in the show, a lot more showcasing of other people now that uh, Chevy's been on the bench for a couple of weeks. And I'm not saying this doesn't air if he's there or anything crazy like that. I don't know. I wasn't there. It feels like there's more room for this total vehicle for somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. They start the cold open with Chevy on the phone and then he's gone for the rest of the episode. And it, and it definitely had a, a different feel than, than mm-hmm. the episodes I've watched thus far. And, and I think it was maybe serendipitous for the show that he had to step out of the way for a minute or two and give other yeah. people some time to shine. Well, uh, yeah, unlike last week where Chevy was mentioned, it seemed every three every three minutes, Matt, uh, that's it for Chevy. So our next sketch is the Killer Bee Swine Flu. And again, the radio from the KLOG radio from the previous sketch is playing in the background when this one starts. Again, more, more of that Python tie-in stuff. It appears to be like a hospital ward. So Jane and Gilda are nurses, and uh, they're, they're giving out vaccinations to swine flu until it's robbed by the killer bees. And uh, they come in with full uh, South American accents and, and mustaches and whatnot. And the bees are allied with swine flu. And the bees are made up of uh, Belushi, of course, Garrett Morris, Dan Aykroyd, Tom Schiller, Belzer's there, and then uh, Eric Idle's there as well. At one point, Eric Idle says something, and instead of having a South American accent, he has a British accent. And Jane and Gilda keep hearing him using terms like chap and bloke. They're suddenly not afraid of that killer bee anymore. He tries to prove who he is by playing La Cucaracha until everybody drops their accents say that Idle ruined the sketch, and they walk off. Lorraine comes out and says Eric was great, and then he asks Lorraine to go back to his dressing room. And uh, this sketch was the first of many random character drops throughout the show. I didn't know where this was going, and it didn't go anywhere, and, and I didn't particularly like this one. That's interesting. I liked it a lot. I really liked it. As I mentioned earlier, I'm not really familiar with a lot of Monty Python television. I do love the contextual continuity and such that brings a certain charm to the show. It started kind of strong for me. I had some laughs at the the early Killer Bee stuff. It started to meander when it was about the the British bee, and and I wasn't sure where it was going with that. It did kind of lose me at the end. Um, Chiron comes up saying, this woman, it says she's great out of bed, and she gets a kick out of that. So we then go to another attempt at Eric Idle to sing Here Comes the Sun. He's trying it again, and Jane comes out again and reminds him that he's supposed to sing it at the end. So they instead throw it to someone who doesn't normally sing, and it's Joe Cocker. English-born Joe Cocker was a huge deal at the time. 
Uh, he got into music in 1960. He has a deep, raspy, bluesy voice. And it allowed him really to build a career doing covers. Of, but his covers are always, almost always quite different from the original. Known for his uh, expressive and outlandish gestures as much as he is his voice. A lot of people thought he actually had a neurological disease or a muscular disease when he first sort of hit the uh, hit the charts and started being seen on television stuff. His, with a little help from my friends at Woodstock, is his most famous bit, but he's also known for uh, some of the other songs that he sings tonight. And the first one is You Are So Beautiful. It was released in 1974, shortly after Billy Preston released the original. And you remember B- Billy Preston from episode one, Matt? Certainly. Yeah, that was a fun one. And that song hit number five on the charts, and uh, it kind of became a signature song, even though I, I'd argue with little help from my friends, was uh, is, is more popular and better known. So, Matt, I've been waiting to talk to you about Joe Cocker. So uh, what do you think of this one first? I don't like blues music, and I find Joe Cocker really schmaltzy. It doesn't work for me. I don't, I don't like any Joe Cocker song. I'm not a Joe Cocker fan. No love here. Uh, well, I am a Joe Cocker fan. I'm not like a super fan. I don't, I don't own any of his albums or anything, but in the, the age of streaming music or, or having a, a music library made up of random songs on an iPod, uh, I've got a handful of his songs that I listen to regularly. So I enjoyed the performance. I did feel like it was misplaced. Uh, it felt like or even earlier on when Jane's uh, cutting Eric Idle off with his guitar. She's saying, you want to save something this powerful for later in the show. And then he comes out and does this like really hard emotional song this early on. And it, and it felt like maybe it should have been a, a later thing. Aside from that, uh, and the fact that Joe's shirt and pants were both entirely too tight, it was, uh, it was yeah. pretty good. Yeah, Joe was going through some rough times at this point. I don't think I've ever seen Joe Cocker look like he's not been hitting the bottle hard. He had a lot of issues, a lot of demons, but I think this was a, this was a particularly bad point. This is one of them ones, too. Like, remember we talked Lean On Me last year. This is one of them songs that, you know, I could go the rest of my life without ever hearing again. Um, but you know, this is exactly what you'd expect from Joe Cocker, except I thought this was, it felt really, really short, which I wasn't really complaining about. The thing about Cocker is he's so filled with emotion that even if like his rhythm or his notes slip off a little bit, uh, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. When I heard Joe Cocker was doing this episode, this is what I expected right down to the T, except for maybe the, uh, you know, the open shirt and the, the tight pants. <laughs> Delivered as promised. Is what I'm yeah. Trying to say. Yeah. So then we go to Gilda as uh, Barbara Walters, Baba Wawa, and she explains why she's leaving NBC. And Barbara Walters did actually leave NBC around this time. She uh, she actually joined ABC on October 4th of this year. So it's only a couple days off. And it, this is really just a bunch of wor- wordplay for Gilda to uh, to do the uh, the speech impediment. You know, Baba is what Baba is. The writing and the word choice, I thought, was really clever. So if you're into Baba Wawa, this is a good one to see. Oh, I didn't like this at all. I, I just hate the whole thing. It's just about her silly voice. And I, I'm going to, I don't mind mentioning it every time. I will beat it to death until we get there. When Sherry O'Terry does Barbara Walters, she makes her this complicated, <laughs> demented character. <laughs> I find there's a psychopathy to her and this is just gilda doing a stupid voice like mm-hmm. the, the levels are really that different it's it's pretty one note uh it didn't overstay its welcome for me like it was, it was short sweet and the word choices did like the writing of it it, it seemed to ramp up as it got further in so it, mm-hmm. it was well crafted for the one joke that it was but yeah if it had gone on any longer i probably would be not feeling it 
So we go to Weekend Update. Uh, Jane Curtin again. She's on the phone. And she tells the uh, the woman on the phone that Chevy's still sick, but she doesn't know where he keeps the batteries. So just a few jokes from the first half. Uh, this is Jane's second time uh, manning the desk after last week. Gerald Ford has been cleared of using campaign funds illegally by the FBI. And because of that, he pardoned Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. And that sent me down a rabbit hole where I didn't really get much answer other than the fact that A, Zimbalist was uh, the director of the FBI, I believe, on a TV show called FBI. And he was also an ardent campaigner for, for Ronald Reagan and a good friend of Reagan. So there's a, the joke is in there somewhere. Ali retained his title unanimously uh, after a decision victory over Ken Norton. And there's children's drawings of the fight. And it's the first time I audibly laughed at the children's drawing bit. The West Point student body are to vote if they want to uh, make a change to the uh, academic honor code about cheating. And 412 students cast over 900 votes. Garrett is in Italy, where there's a lot of priceless art. And somebody took a hammer and chisel and circumcised Michelangelo's David, which is wearing bandages. Um, This may have been done for health reasons, he said, but the statue will never be the same. And Alan Zweibel comes out as a rabbi, and he thinks the culprit did a beautiful job. The only notes I have really going into anything is that the alley bits were funny, which I've already said. And Garrett's mic had a slight echo effect on it, which I really enjoyed. And it's always good to see uh, Alan Zweibel. So that's the first half of uh, Weekend Update. I had a good laugh at the the, the kids' pictures during the Ali bit. And, and I also noted the... Uh, the echo effect on the the mic, and the, there was a nice attention to detail that sort of sold it for me. Um, Jane's got a pretty good presence on the desk, too. Some of the jokes are a little flat, but the way she carries it, uh, I thought it was all right. After seeing a couple of Chevys there, Mark, how are you sitting with Jane there? I think it's a good choice. She's got the sort of grounded, like you could believe her as an actual news reporter, you know? And that helps to sell some of the bits. I find it makes it a little more believable. So I think she, I think she's a great choice. I'm loving it. She looks so small at the desk compared to Chevy. Chevy's a big fella. Just a breath of fresh air. So then we go to a commercial. It's for Epifix, and it's uh, Dan Aykroyd as Roland P. Leach. He's a uh, pharmacist. He's a busy guy who gets a lot of headaches. But when he has one headache, he has to clear it out to make room for the next headache. And Epifix, he's uh, endorsing. It's an injection for fast headache relief. And in order to uh, administer it, it's it's done by syringe and you have to sort of shoot the needle up your nose. And uh, after tying off your neck with a rubber hose, Ackroyd was really good in this. The thing that got the uh, real credit for this though is probably, even though it was probably only about five feet wide, the, uh, the pharmacy set that they had behind him, I loved. Yeah, this was a great segment. You know, again, Short, sweet, uh, the the ramping up to the manic tying off of the neck and the injection was, was excellently executed. Yeah, this this Dan Aykroyd kid's going somewhere, like you've been saying, Matt. He's a, he's a big star this episode. I feel like I, he's coming up again and again, and he's in such strong things for him. He's showing a lot of range, a real presence this entire episode. No, no exception here, of course. I got to... A laugh out of this dementia. It's like pretty much you see all these commercials. We're not we're not far from that now. Seeing some horrible pseudo doctor performing vicious procedures on television. <laughs> we go back to Jane again. 
cartoon history was made, Mary Worth became pregnant out of wed, or no, a character on Mary Worth became pregnant out of wedlock. And uh, ink tests disprove that Bob is the father. Uh, King Features believes that it might be Mutton Jeff, Dagwood, or Jack Anderson. Jane makes a correction in last week's story by uh, by fixing it on the paper, but doesn't make any reference to it verbally. A new case study shows there's not enough violence on TV, and they suggest a few ways to increase it. Johnny Carson held his 14th anniversary. Carson played the clip of when actor Ed Amos shows Carson how to throw a tomahawk. So Belushi comes out as Ames or Amos and just attacks an outline of a human, just hits him in the groin many times with an axe. So Ed Ames was a, an actor, and he threw. He was on uh, Carson one time. Basically, Ames said that he could hit a target from across the room, and Carson asked if he could show it. Ames said he would, and there was a wood panel with a chalk outline of a cowboy on the stage. Ames threw the tomahawk, and it hit the cowboy right in the nuts. And uh, the axe was sort of angled upward, so it looked like the uh, looked like the chalk outline cowboy had a, a large dick. And the audience went nuts. And this is believed to be the longest sustained laugh in the history of television. But then when they go back to Jane, she laughs and says it's still funny. And we look forward to seeing it again many, many times. It's becoming a shot at Carson, who who replayed the clip, const- not constantly, but very frequently on the show. Worked for me pretty much all around. Jane's great. I didn't know the history. So that wasn't, that wasn't landing with me. Um, but you know I love Jane Curtin. I'll, I'll never have a bad thing to say about her. She's a delight. That fake laugh she did uh, was awesome. Yeah, the, the the way she erased out the thing too, and when she was making the the edit to last week's story, the silent correction. Yeah, yeah the silent funny. correction. Like someone in the audience, like straight cracked really hard, and and Jane got this like little little glint in her eye when she heard the audience go off, and it just fantastically executed. So then we go to Lorne Michaels sitting at a desk, and he's uh, returning. It's kind of a follow-up to his Beatles offer. So he mentions that a few months ago he, he made an offer to the Beatles. He never heard anything, but then Eric Idle took the money and said he'd bring the Beatles. But he said he needed the money first so the Beatles could get new clothes. Eric showed up at the airport with no Beatles, and he said Ringo's clothes weren't, re- weren't ready. So he called home to get a video, and uh, there must have been a bad connection because the video he has is not the Beatles, it's the Ruddles. So uh, Eric Idle didn't tell Lauren this until partway through the show, and he's already got the $3,000, so Lauren throws it to the uh, the Ruddles video. The, the joke wasn't overly belabored. A pretty hard medium for me. His cue card reading was killing me. He's terrible with the cue card reading. Yeah, I noticed that too, yeah. So then we go to uh, a video. It's the Ruddles, and uh, this is from Eric Idle's other show, Rutland TV. And it's a uh, sort of a music video done by the uh, the Ruddles, which was a, a Beatles parody group uh, headed up by Idle and Neil Innes. You can really get into the, the, the Ruddles thing a whole lot, but it is available on a few different spots online. It's a music video made up of them singing uh, their song, I Must Be In Love, on an Ed Sullivan-like set. And then it's intercut with them screwing around in a park, sort of like the way the Beatles did in Hard Day's Night. People really like this, and it spun off into a movie called The Ruddles, a fake document, a mockumentary, if you will. That was produced by Lorne Michaels and Eric Idle and directed by Eric Idle and Gary Weiss. 
uh, I picked up right away that it was supposed to be riffing on the Beatles and all that, but I just found it kind of, it felt like it was a little out of place. Like this was a segment lifted from the middle of something else. And it felt like it was supposed to be like the kind of humor you'd get in like a waiting for Guffman or whatever, you know, but, uh, or best in show. But part of those, that kind of humor for me, at least it, it, it takes a while for you to, to soak into it. For, for it to be funny. So this kind of fell flat. Although the, the little bit with um, Eric Idle at the end when he made the yeah uh, the music that'll last a lunchtime joke, that, that got me. And then the, the camera was pulling away as he was running to catch up to it. I thought that was pretty funny. But yeah. most of the Ruddle stuff was pretty flat. I really want to like it. I think that's why I find it a little frustrating uh, because I love, you know, the, the rock umentaries and the, the, the rock bio stuff and the VH1 behind the music nonsense. And so just to have this person create like such a such an obviously well put together parody band and then just have it just sort of not be ha ha comedy, but it's 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 still you can't take it too seriously because they because they you know they gotta make the jokes. I can't I mean I watch it and I love the aesthetic and I, I just I want it to either be funnier than it is or stop trying to be funny at all. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. So we go to a Chiron and uh, it's a woman who is mostly silicon. So our next sketch is called Nazi Spies. It starts with Lorraine sitting on a piano, sort of dressed like a Marlene Dietrich type. Uh, it's a Nazi cabaret and she's singing Tomorrow Belongs to Me from Cabaret. And if you've seen that movie, it's a very unsettling scene. So there's swastikas everywhere, and it looks like everyone who is involved in the show or ever has been involved in the show is dressed as an SS officer. And Eric Idle enters the cabaret, and he's dressed as sort of a German farmer. And he sees Dan Aykroyd sitting at a table, and he sits next to him, and they start saying weird phrases to each other. And you quick, quickly realize that these are spy code phrases, and they're plotting the death of Hitler in the most unnecessarily intricate way. When someone comes near them, they quickly flip into stereotypical German phrases and sentences and being very loud until Dan accidentally says the quiet part loud. To be honest, I really, I enjoyed this up until I didn't like the ending. The ending was so flat and crappy. I didn't like it all. The takeaways on this one for me is how much I really enjoyed the nice slow build as the audience gradually realized Dan Aykroyd's mistake. And also the uh, the chemistry between Aykroyd and Idol in this episode is off the charts. I love Nazi exploitation. The aesthetic that they created on the stage for this Nazi cabaret was incredible. It felt like something out of Inglorious Bastards. I thought they did a fantastic job with the set and everybody just really looked the part, especially Eric Idle as the very obviously British man coming in to the Nazi family. And another vehicle for Dan Aykroyd, who's just continuing. What a knockout for him. Yeah, it was, uh, this was a a really well done skit, aside from, like you said, the ending that I I think we talked about this on a previous episode, you know, sometimes it's really hard to, to end a sketch, right? And this reeked of they had the whole thing written, didn't know what to do. So it's like 
Belushi just jumped in and said something, you know, to, to get them, get them out of it. But uh, outside of that, the set was fantastic. And, and yeah, the chemistry was, was through the roof, like you said. And, and yeah, the way Eric Idle walks in, he even like moves very British. Like, <laughs> you know, he's just sticking out like a sore thumb with all these swastikas floating around. He had like the goofy, like uh, mountain climber sort of German hat on. Like he was, he was trying to look like he should be wearing a bunch of lederhosen and stuff, but it's just, <laughs> it's just so like, it, it felt like he was overdoing his own Britishness on purpose. Is really well done. And the, the two best spy code phrases were cats are nothing more than effeminate dogs. And what do you say to a centipede on opening night? Break four or five legs. So uh, <laughs> big points for me on this one. I get the feeling that somebody wrote an ending and that for whatever reason they didn't go with it or dropped it. But mm. uh, I think if you, if, you, if you write this sketch, somebody wrote an ending. That's all I'm saying. Again, we'll go back to Michael O'Donohue. I, 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 part of me assumed this might have been him, although the Pythons took a lot of shots at the at the Nazis too. Michael O'Donohue wrote a lot of Nazi stuff. Like I saw him on the stage there, and I was wondering if that was his own uniform. Not that he had those leanings, but I know, like reading his book years ago, he did a lot of Nazi stuff in his theater years and stuff like that. That cast for that, the uh, the writers and everything, they were given it in that song. And, and Lorraine was fantastic, too. So this was a real big hit for me, to be honest. There was weird Nazi mania in the 70s as a as a uh, rebellious, some punks. We got mm-hmm. Nazi punks out of the 70s. The flip side, though, 90% of the people on the stage were Jewish. You know what I mean? Take that, Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, <laughs> so it, it's really a zenith there, I guess. So Eric Idle then comes out uh, as his uh, Australian Bruce character. And I got really excited for the philosopher song. But no, he starts singing a song, uh, Rover the Drover. Garrett interrupts him and tells him to have Joe Cocker sing. And this is one time, one time I've been disappointed to see Garrett. As this had been Jane's shtick. And I really don't know why they popped her out and dropped Garrett in for that one. But anyway, Eric Idle introduces Joe Cocker. This is only very short and brief. But what did you think? I can't remember a lot of times watching SNL where they, they carry a shtick all the way through. And it was pretty interesting to see them bringing it back. So I thought that was neat. But yeah, just a quick little joke. I was expecting Jane too, though. Yeah, weird. So uh, Joe Cocker and the stuff come out. And uh, if you look really, really closely, there is in the background a bongo player in full Nazi regalia. I don't know if you guys noticed that. No. I didn't actually catch that, no. Now, part of me at first thought, I guess somebody didn't get out of costume. And then I started laughing at the thought that maybe a member of uh, of Stuff was actually a, uh, a Nazi who toured with them. And that's what he wore every night. Cocker sings Feeling All Right. And it's originally done by a band called Traffic. They released it in 68. And then a couple of weeks later, I think Cocker released another version that hit that did far better on the, uh, the charts. And then he re-released it again in 72 and it hit 33. So Stuff, just a little bit of uh, info on them. There were studio band or studio musicians that were made up of like these stellar musicians that people wanted to work with a lot. And they backed people like Aretha Franklin, John Lennon, Paul Simon. And uh, they were the backing band for Joe Cocker on his Stingray album. So Cocker starts singing Feeling All Right. And then out comes Belushi with his Cocker impression. This isn't, this isn't my bag. 
I don't dig it. You know, I get it. It's popular music. I don't have to like all popular music. And I just have, uh, like, Joe Cocker is just such a dead cause for me. Uh, this is my bag. Like, this song in particular, uh, I listen to fairly regularly. If I'm going for a walk on a sunny day, this is one of the tunes that I want pumping in my headphones. So I really enjoy this and the fact that, you know, Joe had, had Belushi come out and play up his, his version. I thought that showed it was a good sport, letting himself be parodied right in front of him like that. And they kind of had a little bit of a nice back and forth. Uh, as it was like building up towards the end of the song. So I really enjoyed this. Mm -hmm. Although I feel like maybe this should have been the first song he did and he should have saved You Are So Beautiful for this slot as you get later into the episode. This would have been a, a definite highlight for me if I hadn't seen Belushi do Cocker so much the first year. Like he did it once and it was great. And then he came back and did it like three or four weeks in a row and it really watered it down. Now, maybe if there had been the time to pass or in between like we haven't waited a whole summer in between or anything like that but uh yeah this was this was okay i mean this was good i and and i i enjoyed it but i kind of got a bit of cocker fatigue uh from last year and now uh yeah joe cocker thought the impression was good vocally uh he thought he, he nailed him vocally but he didn't say much else about that and there's even some people in here that there's even been some suggestions that cocker really hated it but because he was in such a rough spot in his life, he didn't feel like he had the fight in him to keep that from happening. But he wanted to do the show. His hands might have been tied about preventing it if he wanted to. Just a bunch of ska here and there about that. But yeah, I wrote down here exactly what you said, Mark. Uh, Cocker was a good sport about it. So then we go to Dragnet. And uh, this features uh, Dan Aykroyd and Eric Idle in the, 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 the main roles. And of course, Aykroyd later does a... Uh, a movie of Dragnet with uh, Tom Hanks. But at this point, it's a completely different Dragnet. And it's Aykroyd and Idol. They're wearing dresses. They're uh, in an apartment. Their phone rings. It's a Lucille Ball, and they ignored it. But then they answer. There's a crime in progress. So they go out the door, and it's a couple of outside shots, which are neat. And uh, they meet Garrett, who's a motorcycle cop, also in a dress. And he's waiting outside. Uh, there's a crime going on in, in the building. So they go into the building uh, without Garrett because he has a snag in his pantyhose. And Lorraine Newman opens the door. They're there to arrest Belushi, who's under arrest for, for uh, impersonating a police officer because he's dressed sort of like Idol. And then they break character and talk about drag not being funny in the States. Belushi says drag is just not acceptable. And Idol invites Aykroyd back to his dressing room. Aykroyd says he has a bad Jack Webb. Uh, and then they uh, Belushi and uh, Lorraine... I think, yeah, Belushi and Lorraine throw to a movie and it's drag racing today and it's Eric Idle and Dan Aykroyd racing in lingerie and wigs. When they think it's not working, they think they can hear the audience laughing even though they're on film. This is convoluted. There's elements of this that are very, very funny. Again, it's another dropping out of character twice in one sketch. I do like discussion about bringing up the different cultural perceptions of using drag and comedy, which is a big topic today and, and and was a topic back then but in a different way there's a lot of python elements here but this was a just a mishmash i really didn't enjoy although i i really liked garrett's bit and i liked the drag racing segment yeah this was quite the roller coaster ride there was definitely some like like you said garrett's bit and and the the drag racing both hit pretty well and 
But that that middle bit with Belushi, where they broke character, and even just before they broke, when Eric Idle was like getting mad that Belushi was wearing the same dress, just it didn't hit. Like the delivery felt off, and it just yeah, kind of kind of spun around and it's uh, in a circle for a little bit and lost its way. It was pretty windy. There was too much going on. Of course, Belushi's the one that doesn't like dudes in a dress. I, I thought the discussion. Yeah, indeed, it was uh, it was interesting. I, I thought a lot of it was really funny, too, though. The, the drag racing part at the end was hilarious. And Eric and Dan were just, they, they, they seemed, they were really committed. Uh, they're going for it hard on the heels. And then afterwards, the little the little chat, trying to figure out if the audience was laughing or if it wasn't working. It's just some, there's a, just chemistry's great between them. Yeah, they're, uh, for me, though, I mean, they're, they're leaning so heavy on the meta. It's just, it's um, at this point, I was just really, really annoyed by it. It felt overthought, like like it was yeah. it was getting caught up in itself. It was trying to be, I mean, it was trying to be Python, but Python didn't quite do it that way. Chiron comes up saying, this guy is doomed. So then Belushi comes out still in his drag clothes and he introduces Stuff. And Stuff plays, it's called Foots. It's a funk jazz instrumental bit. Um, I don't have much to say. I mean, it was instrumental. Uh and I'm a lyric person. Um, but I really, really enjoyed this. I really liked how effortless the guys made this and how much, you know, they were kind of, they were, they were definitely enjoying themselves. Great performance. Love watching the sound. Really wish they would have ditched a cocker number for this. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed this. I was, you know, music's supposed to make you feel something. I was, I was bouncing and tapping my feet through the whole thing. I, I was a big fan. And did you notice how much fun like the big smile on the piano player that guy looked like he was having the time of his life yeah, oh, yeah. he did he was bouncing that's infectious you know you see someone enjoying themselves that much while they're playing it makes it easier for you to get into it too yeah i was gonna say that i, I was, you said it way better than i could have i was gonna say it in a really sappy way that that guy's smile made me smile <laughs> which is exactly <laughs> what happened <laughs> yeah, that's, that's beautiful man yeah i know i didn't want to make anyone cry though but no i really i really like this so now we go to the undersea world of jacques Cousteau, and it's Ackroyd again narrating uh, a toy submarine in a fish tank the camera zooms out and it suddenly turns into a show called pets and petting hosted by eric idle eric idle gives some info on how to feed goldfish and he says uh, give them good food then he pours soup in the tank and some chicken and pours cabbage and wine and cheesecake and coffee he pours it into the tank where the goldfish are and then at the end of the sketch it cuts back into the submarine and it's Ackroyd's narration again. My first thing was, my very first reaction was, the fish swimming around reminds me of the uh, the meaning of life bit. I didn't like this. I, I At one point, I, well, in my notes here, I wrote, where's PETA? Um, I don't know. I was disturbed by this a little bit. Yeah, this definitely felt, for me, the most Python of all the segments. Like, the two narration bits with the, the Cousteau, uh, Jacques Cousteau stuff, mm -hmm. um, not not... As much, but that whole bit with Eric Idle throwing all the things into the tank, uh, that felt like it could have been straight lifted from a Monty Python show. But I was a little concerned for the fish, I'm not going to lie, by the end, when he started dumping all the wine in, I was like, ah, who's getting them out of there soon? This can't be good for them. Um, yeah, Python, Python wouldn't have used real fish, you know? No, 
But I did, I did laugh. I'm not gonna lie at the absurdity when he when he threw the chicken in and like all the water splashed out before like it felt like it was going too far for the safety of the fish. Uh, I did, I did have a pretty good laugh at that, and I was kind of surprised that they went back to the the Cousteau narration on on the back end. That was a an interesting surprise for me that they, they didn't just keep chugging; they they wrapped back around onto it. Yeah. So I, I thought it was all right. I didn't think it was uh, very good. It didn't make me laugh. Thought it was strange. Not in a cool late night TV way. Maybe it was too British for me. I didn't get it. You know what? That's that, that's the best way to put it. I didn't get this. I also thought of Fish Called Wanda with uh, Michael Palin loving the fish and Kevin Klein taking it out of the tank. And But uh, yeah, no, I, I got concerned about the fish. No, I eat fish. I love to eat fish. So I, I, I recognize the contradiction. But uh, yeah, this was kind of weird. We then go to Garrett Morris as Ken Norton, who, uh, as we can update a point out, had recently lost to Muhammad Ali. He's wearing the biggest boxing gloves I think I've ever seen. And he starts out by vocally disagreeing with the results of the fight and so he starts talking about a million reasons why he actually won his fight against Ali until he slowly sort of turns it from a boxing match into it's like a Miss America pageant and he goes into the talent portion where he sings Vesti La Juiba I think it's called it's the tenor area from Pagliacci and of course it's always great to hear Garrett sing Uh, yeah I enjoyed this but not a lot I, I don't know there was something off about the Norton part but I Certainly love uh, love when Garrett gets to belt it out. Crowd really popped for him. They loved it. I think they were probably surprised, as you know, every, anybody would be when he just starts ripping like that. Yeah, this this felt a little windy again. Like we've we've had this come up a couple times throughout the episode, where it's it's trying to string together a, a few different premises, and and yeah, that the first bit felt a little confusing and then when he got into the the miss america pageant like he made a joke about the the swimwear uh portion and how they both had to wear the same trunks so it didn't really count but yeah when he started singing i didn't see that coming he's got some pipes on him and and yeah the crowd (laughs) really jumped on it our next sketch is uh cufflinks of the gods and it's lorraine at a desk hosting a pbs style segment about uh comedy and other galaxies and comedy in the history of the world and if aliens brought comedy um she's playing uh the professor of anthrocomicology at rutledge university and yeah she's basically wondering if comedians have visited from other planets and if they left clues behind that they've been there my only laugh was when when she held up the tablet and says right here it says take wife it goes to a bit with a whole bunch of people doing ed mcmahon hayo impersonations this was this was weird this was really not good but there was something compelling about it in the sense that it's it's a really kind of clever idea that didn't make me laugh it had a a lot of sctv is that for me really clever ideas that don't really make me laugh i thought lorraine was great but the material wasn't totally awesome i'm glad you said that because i really uh this didn't make me laugh but i really enjoyed it i enjoyed watching it uh lorraine really can get into a character really well in in a way she has you know what all she got to do is hide that big hair to be honest and i can just kind of lose whoever she is Uh, i thought it was really interesting to watch and i I wasn't like ha ha funny but this was hardly a miss for me i I enjoyed watching it you know what i mean this could almost be real yeah it was it was engaging like it it reminded me of uh i don't know if you guys ever watched in search of back in the day (laughs) but yeah yeah yeah, I love that show. And this almost had that kind of a feel to it. 
and and yeah, it wasn't ha ha funny, but there was something that it, I was still like, I was in it. I feel like the jokes, like it must probably could have used like another a rewrite or two to to punch up some actual jokes in the thing. But if it was ha ha funny, it might not have the same intriguing effect. So if uh, Baba Wawa didn't do it, and Three Songs in One Night didn't do it, and Joe Cocker didn't do it, I figured. Matt's breaking point was coming up as we go to Pong with Al Franken and Tom Davis. And this is the first time we've seen what's that? Fuck, fuck man. Like you gotta sorry, I shouldn't be cursing my kid is around. <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> this is the first time we've seen Pong in quite some time. So it's just Al Franken and Tom Davis talking about they were in a they had a test about barometric pressure, and Davis talked about all the ways he could have he told his professor, his teacher, all the different ways he could have passed the test and got the correct barometric pressure without having to know the actual formula. This filled the time that it, it was given. And and I, the worst thing about this Pong compared to the other ones is I could sort of see what they were going for this time and it just fell flat for me. Yeah, there was one or two small moments where like, like one guy was the smart guy and one guy was the dumb guy. And I felt like I could tell which was which with their pong paddles. And and the dumb guy, whenever he would get confused by what the smart guy was saying, he would screw up playing pong. I I thought that was like a good execution. And and the the delivery uh, from the dumb guy, like he could hear the confusion in his voice while he's screwing up at Pong and it's just all too much for him to process, I guess. But yeah, it, it did fall pretty flat outside of that little bit of execution for me. It was just, I don't know, felt kind of like, like a half-baked idea. I mean, what a what a wild ride this episode is. Like, I've surprised the Muppets didn't have an appearance. It's <laughs> been, sometimes it's just so really, really good. And then other times it's they're just scraping by. It's uh, It's been a fascinating episode to watch. So then we go to the goodbyes. Uh, so it's Idol sitting there back at home base with the cast around him, and Joe Cocker's there too. And he finally gets to sing Here Comes the Sun. So he does the guitar intro, <laughs> and then everybody jumps in with yelling the song. Um, I got a big kick out of that. Uh, this was a nice way to wrap up this episode. Yeah, I definitely popped when everyone jumped in because I was, you know, you're expecting Idol to keep doing the shtick, but then everybody in that, like, dumb, flat, yelling voice in, in unison. And you could tell they were all having so much fun with it, you know? Like it, was, it was just a, a nice little group moment to, to wrap it up. Great ending. Wild ride this episode. So now we can go into the epilogue. And this is a short one. Eric Idle is going to be back really soon. So uh, I don't have much to say there. And Joe Cocker is going to be back in a couple of years. And uh, he, he has one big hit in the meantime with, uh, what is it called, Up Where We Belong? With uh, from Officer and a Gentleman, um, and there'll be a bit more to say when he comes back, but it's a couple of years out. So let's talk Eric Idle. For me, Eric Idle was a lot of fun. He was definitely not blending in the way you know your Elliot Goulds and Buck Henrys do, but he was working well with other people. It was kind of a weird hybrid there. He was strong in everything he did, even when the material wasn't good. You could see his imprints on the writing as if, you know, maybe he wrote a lot or people capably wrote stuff for him. For him, things ranged from very, very good to not so good. Um, but none of his stuff I thought was particularly bad, bad. Um, yeah, it was just a, it was a fun ride and he was definitely having a good time. I really enjoyed it. Um, honestly, the, the only major drawback was that we didn't get an actual monologue from him. And I mean, if, if I'm saying 
we're missing something. I didn't get enough of them. That's that's a pretty shining recommendation. But I've also had the bar set real low after Ron Nessam and uh, Louise Lasser just having an actual performer with any sense of comedic timing at all was uh, it was just a fantastic treat. <laughs> this is your first time having someone who's both coherent and a performer. So, uh... <laughs> right? <laughs> so uh, he knocked it out of the park as far as I'm concerned. It's interesting. There, there can be two types. I'm sure there's more, but, uh, the, you know, obviously there can be more than one, I guess is all I'm t- trying to say, type of successful host. Because you got your blender inners, and I, that really impresses me when you can become a cast member. But I also think it can be a huge success when you just walk in and are just nothing at all like what the show is doing, which is how I felt about Eric Idle. I thought he was a top-tier host, unique hilarious seemed good to go for whatever and it looked like everybody had a lot of fun i loved him so the music uh for me uh you know what to expect with joe cocker and you got what you expect with joe cocker you are so beautiful felt short which uh which i was fine with feeling all right was fun for me and stuff were fantastic stuff was a nice surprise yeah it really saved the episode musically for me uh, the music was a hit for me but uh you are so beautiful and, and feeling all right could have been swapped in their positions, like I said before, uh, or you could have just got rid of it all together. That sort of ballady, heartfelt, deep emotion isn't always what you need in a comedy variety show, especially when you have someone like Eric Idle creating all this manic energy throughout a lot of like the rest of the show felt very up. Even when it was it was skidding out and, and taking winding weird turns, it felt up. And so You're So Beautiful felt a little out of place, but stuff nailed it. So what was the worst bit of the night for you, gents? Yeah, I'll tell you mine. I didn't like that uh, fish one with Jacques still. That, uh, that just didn't work for me. Yeah, I'm I, the same. I didn't get it. Like, I know I already said I didn't get it, but it... I mean, they didn't get it. I don't. I really don't know how to uh, contextualize it any better. Uh, it was like a bunch of silly things happening. There, there was the gag was silly. Like I don't know if it's making fun of a TV show that I don't know, or mm-hmm. uh, like it's just the the whole thing was just lost on me. I didn't like it. Well, the only thing that was of any benefit from that sketch was Dan Aykroyd's Cousteau impression, which, if I recall, everyone did that impression anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm also going with the fish. I guess I'd probably have to say maybe the Ruddles um, as, as a complete segment. It just kind of felt like it wasn't going anywhere. So it didn't really land for me. So what was the best for tonight for you guys? I think I got to go, even with the flubbed ending, with the uh, the, the Nazi cabaret sketch. Just the, the chemistry between Idol and, and Dan Aykroyd was just fantastic. And, like, the whole presentation was so well done. Like, it, it looked like the show has is working with a bigger budget, you know? Like, they, they spent some money to get the, the atmosphere right, and it was smoky, and everyone singing together was nice. That's a times two over here. My favorite sketch of the night. Kill Hitler and steal a plane? The Britishness of Eric Idle when he walked in. God, it cracked me up. The production design was excellent. This it was a big hit for me. Yep, same here. We got a sweep on that one. Um, no question about it. Ending sucked, but I can say that for almost every sketch tonight anyway. So yeah, I really loved that sketch, even with the bad ending. 
So who was your star of the night, fellas? Oh, clearly Dan Aykroyd. Showed so much range, did so many different things. The way he worked with the host, uh, he did a cup, had a couple of solo bits with the, the DJ and, and the, the doctor in the commercial. He blew this one out of the water. Agreed. He was a star tonight. It was, you know, borderline Dan and Eric, Dan and Eric uh, over and over. And I mean, it was working. You know, the, it's fine that the other people are doing their supporting roles for the night. Somebody else is getting some spotlight instead of Chevy. Uh, Dan Aykroyd was firing all cylinders. No argument here. So overall, um, I didn't miss Chevy Chase at all, to be honest, uh, even less than the week before. But to be honest, that probably would have been the case for any member of the cast, because this was really the Dan and Eric show. Now, they tended to lean way too heavily for me on breaking characters, going meta, and trying to copy Python's way of switching sketches, and I found they didn't do it nearly as well as Python did. The first half of the show, for me, was centered around Idol trying to sing a song. It's interwoven into the story. They completely forgot about it, though, in the second half until the end. The Ruddles was fun, but it's not original to the show. Update was still good, weaker than last week's, um, but not nearly as bad as some of Chevy's bad ones were. Always great to hear Garrett sing. Strong night for Aykroyd, and actually kind of a strong night for Belushi for me. Gilda Lorraine and Garrett didn't get as much to do as I would have liked, but it was still evenly spread out, which I would take over kind of spotlighting people anyway. The music for me was above average. I, I didn't like it as a show as much as I probably like some individual parts. I gave this one a 6 out of 10. What a great summary, Keith. Fantastic. First of all, out of the gate, I'm going to agree this was a 6 out of 10. What a hodgepodge of a show uh, this ultimately was for me. It felt higher. Like when I'm watching it, like what a, it's a very strong 6, but it's not a 7, uh, which I know this is just a subjective ranking in my mind. Uh, but goodness, I, I have a sense of it after doing a couple of dozen at this point. And if it was just more of what was working spread more throughout the episode, because it was just like even to Mark's point, we didn't all like the Ruddles. That was weird. It wasn't always ha-ha funny. Uh, it was certainly interesting. I feel weird giving it a six, though, because they tried a lot of new things. And some of it I just liked so, so much more. Uncomfortable. Six. Six and a half. Do we do halves? We can do halves. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm six and a half. I don't know if uh, maybe my expectations, like I said before, <laughs> were set low, but this this crests the hill of seven for me. There were some real low lows in moments, but they were able to pick up the energy back afterwards. Like, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. you're watching a comedy show like this and you, and you get a bad ending to a skit, and then they struggle to, to write the ship afterwards. And this... It felt like every time it fell down, it, you know, it skinned its knee, but it got back up and just got right back to running, you know? Uh, and I really, really enjoyed the music, but um, I could see how one would not. I'm, I'm giving it a seven, strong seven. Um, so with my six, Matt 6.5, and Mark seven, it averages out at 6.5. Um, and the Internet Movie Database folks gave this one a 7.8, which is, is quite high. And it's uh, ranked as the third, this is as of November 22nd, 2021, it's ranked as the third best Saturday Night Live episode of the season, the 63rd best to date, and it also made a few other lists, uh, Stacker listed on their 60 best episodes, and uh, somebody else said it's the 41st best uh, for uh, music, uh, the 41st best musical performance 
to date is the Feeling All Right with uh, Belushi. So a lot of accolades for this one that I would disagree with a few of, but I can totally get the appeal. Crazy high praise in there for such a spotty episode. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Well, Mark, this was a pleasure to have you in for a good episode. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully there's more of these in the future. Our next episode, Chili will be back and the host is going to be Karen Black. And the musical guest is John Prime. Is that tickling you at all, Matt? Very excited for next week's episode. High expectations, high hopes. Fingers crossed for me. I really is want it, this to be a winner. Is it more Karen Black? Is it John Prine or is it just the uh, the role they're on? Uh, it's more Karen Black for me, mm-hmm. but I mean, John Prine's cool. We'll be back in about a week. But until then, we'll be looking for local singles in our area to take to a German cafe and kill some fish with some wine and soup here in SN Hell. 